Welcome to the podcast of Christ Community Baptist Church, located in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, the heart of Appalachia. We are a reformed, confessional, and gospel-centered church seeking to make disciples by declaring the gospel, displaying the gospel, and defending the gospel to the glory of God and the eternal good of our neighbors. We pray that this teaching you will soon hear is edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Come join us for worship this Lord's Day. For more information about CCBC, visit ccbcpressensburg.org. Church, this morning, uh, we're going to begin our Summer in the Psalms series. Uh, this is something that uh, we borrowed from our, our, uh, our sending church, Lakeville Baptist Church, every summer. Uh, they, because um, people were out, in and out, um, uh, with vacations, and just to kind of break it up a little bit and not get uh, so monotonous, um, every summer they enter into uh, a series just through the Psalms, not in any, any particular order, uh, but just through the Psalms for about eight weeks, and then we've adopted that same model, so uh, over the course of the next two months, um, until around August, uh, we will be in the Psalms, and this morning, uh, we'll be in Psalm 4. Uh, but so, the Psalms, just as an introduction, uh, the Psalms are um, a collection of hymns and poems. Right? They're a collection of hymns and poems, and they, they've been placed into the book that we know as the Psalms, but they're actually subdivided into five smaller books. And while David did indeed write the majority of the Psalms, um, it's a common misconception that he wrote the entirety of the Psalms. And he did write the one that we're going to go through this morning. Um, but as you get farther along into the Psalms, we'll see that uh, he did not indeed write them all. Uh, in reality, we find that the 150 Psalms that we have recorded for us, uh, they find themselves with various authors. And even though the Psalms are poetic, uh, that doesn't negate their divine inspiration. That doesn't mean that they aren't the inspired Word of God. The Psalms are just as much inspired as uh, Ephesians or Deuteronomy. They have just as much authority and just as many treasures to be found in their pages as that of uh, Romans or Isaiah. We must remember that the Lord spoke through the men that composed these Psalms, these songs and poems, to benefit His people not only when they were written, but throughout all the ages. And because we are dealing with songs and poems, we can't approach uh, the Psalms in the same way that we would an epistle uh, or a prophecy or even a narrative. We can't always walk through verses consecutively, um, but instead we may find ourselves, as we will this morning, jumping back and forth between different ideas and themes found in that particular psalm. And it's with that I would ask you to take a copy of God's Word this morning. Open it to the fourth psalm uh, as we read it out loud. It says, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. This psalm was written while David uh, took refuge from a rebellion by his son, Absalom. Absalom was the third son of David, and he had named himself king of Israel and uh, had slept with David's concubines and had gathered an army to chase after David to take his life. 
Ultimately, we see Absalom defeated at the Battle of Ephraim's Wood, and he's murdered by Joab against the command of David, uh, but he's murdered by Joab there. However, this psalm is an account of David during this revolt by his son. We are able to peek into the mind of David as he wrestles with what has happened to both him and his kingdom. Looking at the sorrow and anguish felt by him during this painful time in his life, this psalm serves as a reminder to us. It's a reminder of where our eyes should be, even at the lowest points in our life, as I'm sure David was at this point in his life. To imagine that your very own son is trying to kill you, trying to take your kingdom, trying to take everything that God has bestowed upon you. That's certainly a low moment in one's life. And for David to see him in that low moment uh, respond in the way that he does should be an inspiration and a reminder to us that even when the situation seems lost, even when the situation is telling us that it, God has not been faithful to what He has promised, I'm sure David had those moments of doubt. David was, was anointed king by God and now all of a sudden his kingdom's gone. Now all of a sudden he's been run out of his own kingdom. His son's chasing after him, trying to kill him. But even in those moments, even in those moments, David knew that God was faithful. And this should be a reminder to us. This psalm of David is a light in the dark. It's a lit up arrow pointing us to where we should take our refuge. Where we should find our hope and our peace. So as we come into the psalm this morning, we see David first crying out to the Lord to hear his call. Now this should immediately shift our minds to that of prayer. Right? David is calling out in prayer to the Lord. David was, was a praying man. And this is something that we see reflected not only here in the psalms, but also in the narrative accounts about David. David was a prayer warrior, as we would call him today. His position towards prayer is laid out clearly for us in this fourth psalm. David knew one truth above all other truths. God listens to His people. God listens to His people. This is why David could cry out to God at a time in his life when he was filled with grief, with pain, with sorrow, and with heartache. At a time when his very own son was in rebellion and trying to kill him. This truth grounded David in a spiritual discipline that brought him more joy, that brought him more peace than any other thing in his life ever had. But how do we view prayer? We see how David views prayer, but how do we view prayer? Is it simply a time when we can vent to God and tell Him about our day? Is it just a time that we can come to our Father and Beg Him to fix a situation that we most likely got ourselves into. What does prayer accomplish in our eyes? When we think about prayer, what pops in our head? There are a few things that we can learn about prayer from David here in the fourth psalm. Chief among them is that it should be our very first response. It should be our very first response. Response. Prayer should be so natural to the Christian that when anything, good or bad, befalls us, we should respond in prayer. There, uh, we have a natural tendency when we find ourselves in a hard situation to try to get ourselves out of it, right? Uh, we, we find ourselves in those situations. The re this is a result of the pride that is found in human hearts. That we want to fix the situation ourselves. We don't need help. Take a small child, for instance. Normally around the age of three to five, you'll notice that despite the difficulty of the task, they indeed do not need your help. They can do it themselves. This is something that we carry into our adulthood. Something that we continue to do. We instinctively want to do everything on our own because it is according to our fallen nature. We don't need God. We don't need help. We need ourselves. That's a result of our pride. This is a sin that we must kill. 
This is a sin that we must kill. When we rely on our own strength to fix a situation and try to force it in a direction that we prefer, we are denying the sovereignty of God in our lives. We're effectively saying that we know better than God and that we have more power than Him to bring about our will. Right? When we try to do everything on our own, we don't turn to the Lord, we don't turn to His counsel, we're saying, God, I don't need your advice. God, I don't need your direction. God, I don't need your help. I can do this all on my own. Amen. That's surely true of us when we try to merit our salvation, right? That we try to do it all on our own. I, I, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I can do enough good works to, to when we get to the end and there's a scale and, and my good works will outweigh my bad. Beloved, this morning I tell you that is not the reality. We try to override God in every area of our life. That's just our fallen nature. We want to refuse God in every area of our life. It takes a humble heart to go to the Lord uh, in prayer as a first response and not as a last response. As a first response and not as a last response. I'm sure all of us, when, when it finally gets too sticky, when the situation gets too sticky and we can't fix it, then we go to prayer. But it takes a humble heart that in the beginning of the situation, we go to the Lord in prayer to call upon Him before we try to intervene. Not to call on Him to clean up a, clean up a mess that we've made worse. We can also see that prayer is a gift of grace to believers from God. The sovereign, almighty God of the universe has opened a direct line of communication for you to speak with Him. It's amazing to think about that the one, as we spoke of this morning in Sunday school, that created all things. He brought everything into existence. Surely He's got more things to deal with than little old us. And He's opened up a direct line of communication with Him for us. Pick your favorite sports hero or your favorite artist, uh, actor, author, whatever it may be. If I were to tell you that you could have an open line of communication with them, how would you react? If you could speak to, to your hero, how would you react? If someone were to tell me that I could have at any moment spoken to Kobe Bryant, I would be ecstatic. I'd be over the moon. I would want to talk to him all the time. This is obviously unrealistic. Uh, we can't have uh, open lines of communication really with hardly anyone in our lives, uh, but especially uh, with those that we look up to and admire. However, we do in reality have this access God. We have this access to God that we can speak to Him at any time we please. To call upon Him for help. To confess our sin to Him when it becomes burdensome. To offer Him praise and adoration as we have this morning at the beginning of the service. God isn't a 9 to 5 sovereign ruler. He doesn't just come in uh, at 9 in the morning and leave at 5 and then you're left to your own devices from, from 6 until 8 the next morning. He doesn't have office hours that He sets aside to listen to prayer. He's always available to us. And this is a truth that should comfort our weary hearts. To know that the Lord is available both day or night. To know that He's never too busy to listen. To know that He's never too tired to listen. What a remarkable truth. When we think about other individuals in our lives, myself included, I'm guilty of this as well, there's, there's moments where, where I'm too tired to listen to other people's problems. I've had a long day at work and, and, and it's just it's been hard and I, and I get home and I'm tired. I don't want to listen to it, especially being a barber. I, you know, sometimes I get in a, in a mood, I don't want to listen to anybody else talk for the rest of the day. I get in moods where I'm too tired. I also get in moods where I'm too busy. We all do this, right? We're too busy. We don't have, we don't have the five minutes uh, to take out of our day to sit down and listen to someone uh, and their problems. But God never has this issue. God does not uh, get tired. He does not, he's not. He's never too busy. He never sleeps. He never takes vacation. He's always there. However... Knowing that he can listen and that he does listen are two entirely different things. 
We can all affirm that he can listen, but that doesn't that brings some amount of comfort, but not as much as knowing that he does listen to us. We never have to wonder if God is listening to us. At the end of verse 3, uh, we also see that we can have confidence that our prayer is heard. The, what does David say? The Lord hears when I call to him. David makes a definite claim that God hears his prayers. This should lead us to this conclusion. We can boldly call on the Lord. We can boldly call on the Lord. We don't have to come before God wondering if, if He will hear us or want to hear us, worrying that He won't listen to us, that our problems aren't significant enough for Him. Hebrews 4.16 gives us assurance that we can do this. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Let us have confidence. This isn't something that we just come into the throne room and, and whimpering and, 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 and shuddering saying, Lord, do you have time for me right now? But just like with your parents, nobody walks into their parents' house that way. When you walk into your mom, and, mom or dad's house, what do you do? You walk in boldly. I walk into my dad's house, I walk in and sit down on the couch and kick my feet up on the table. I boldly walk in. I have confidence to walk in and talk to him about anything that I need to talk to him about. Hebrews tells us that we need to have that same confidence with our Father. Because as great as my Father is, in my opinion, as, as loving as He is, He pales in comparison to the greatness and, and loving Father that I have in heaven. When we know that we have open communication with God, with the God of the universe, the Creator of all things, that He is in fact listening to us, why are we still so hesitant to speak? Right? Prayer is oftentimes the most neglected part of the Christian life, myself included. I'm preaching to you and to myself this morning. Why? Why do we fail to communicate with God in the way that David did? As often as David did. I believe one reason we fail, is, uh, fail to do this is because we fail to see the true benefits and rewards of prayer. When we have a low view of prayer, we're not going to spend uh, much time or put much emphasis on it. Now that would be true of anything, but it's especially true of this spiritual discipline. When you have a, a low view of something, you're not going to put a lot of effort into that. right? This is the same truth with prayer. We often err in what we think prayer accomplishes. We often err in what we think prayer accomplishes. I would ask you here this morning, do you think prayer changes things? Now that seems like a kind of silly question to ask believers, right? That's a silly question to ask at church. Does prayer change things? But if you would allow me this morning to make one amendment to my question, I would ask, do you really think that prayer changes anything? If I were to ask you about the sins and the struggles that you have in this life, about the disobedience that you struggle with, about the anxieties and the heartaches that you have, about the genuine needs that each and every one of us have in this life, I'm confident they will be plenty. It's just the course of this life. It's the course of this sin-cursed world. We're going to have heartache. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have uh, needs that, that aren't met at times. We're going to, as believers, we're going to deal with sin. We're going to have to fight sin daily. We're going to struggle with sin. We're going to struggle with disobedience, which in itself is a sin, but those things that we ought to do that we don't do. Not necessarily sinning as an action, but sinning as inaction. We struggle with those things. And if I were to ask each and every one of you, if I sat down with you in a personal counseling session, you would, I'm sure, could unload on me for days, as I could you, about the things that we struggle with. But what if I were to ask you about those things, and when you finish telling me, I immediately ask you, how much time do you spend in prayer on a daily basis? It's a sobering thought. It was sobering for me when I was studying through this passage. To think of all the things that are, that are going wrong, to think of all the things that could go wrong, to think of all the things I struggle with, to think of all the things uh, that, that, take, that take place in this life, and then to ask myself, how much time do you spend in prayer? And I ask you that this morning. I'm sure I would receive answers like, well, I, I pray uh, for a few minutes when I first wake up, or I pray before I go to bed. 
Maybe you even pray on your commute to work. But how often do we actually sit down, myself included, I'm, I'm not judging, how often do we actually sit down for longer than five minutes in prayer to the sovereign God of the universe? That's how I can ask, do we really think that prayer changes things when we don't pray? If we believe that prayer truly changed things, then we would, or if they believed that, but they didn't pray often, we would be left with one of two conclusions. One, they don't need anything and they don't ever struggle with sin, which we know is not true. Or two, they don't actually believe prayer changes anything. And even though we may believe this morning that prayer changes things, we may not be as confident and as uh, sure that it does as we should be. As those who believe in the sovereignty of God in all things, we may be enticed to fall into this camp that, well, God is sovereign and He's already ordained everything that will happen, so there's no need for me to pray. Why do I need to pray if it's already going to happen the way it's supposed to happen? Well, this will be a costly error. Beloved, prayer is the only thing that can change anything. God has determined, He has ordained, because He is sovereign, to use prayer to change things. To use our prayer to bring about His sovereign and righteous will. Isn't that an amazing thought? To think that God would use our feeble, measly words that we offer up to Him as a means to bring about the things that He is already determined to bring about. That God would use weak vessels like us to accomplish His will. It seems unbelievable that this is the case. This is what God, being sovereign, has chosen to do. It's not as if we are changing God's mind. So don't, don't think that. God does not change His mind. But that He has chose prayer. The prayer that we offer up to bring about the means of a specific situation. This should encourage us to pray even more. Will the answer be yes every single time? No. <laughs> Certainly not. And that isn't because of your lack of faith, uh, but because of His sovereign plan. But when we view prayer as the catalyst that God uses to bring about His will, we should be in prayer even more. After all, aren't we praying as Jesus teaches us in Matthew that His will be done? In this we see that prayer also aligns us with God's will. It's the common misconception that prayer aligns God with our will. right? That, that we are trying to get Him to do the, the things that we want. Now most people don't say that. But now the way that they pray tells us that they do. It reveals that they do indeed believe that that is what the function of prayer is for. When we go to God in prayer, we should be praying for His will to be accomplished, just as Jesus instructed. For example, if our desire is for Christ to return, and it is clearly the will of God that He does, then we should be praying that His will come to pass every moment of our lives. Friends, this is true in every situation, not just in our wanting of Christ to return. We should want God's will in our lives in every facet. Praying in this manner places our hearts in a position of submission to the Father. We don't like that. Again, that pride that I was talking about before, that I can do everything on my own, or I'm in charge of my own life. I determine my destiny, which is a common American conception. That I can do it myself. We don't like that thought of being in submission to anyone. Right? But praying in a, in a biblical way will put us in submission to God. It will place us in a place of submission to God. It gives us the mindset that no matter what befalls us, again, good or bad, that no matter what befalls us, that it is according to His perfect plan. That what we have and what we receive is exactly what we need. Even if it's not what we want. Huh? God doesn't always give us what we want. But I can promise you He always gives us what we need. Now there's a teaching that's growing rapidly here in these mountains that tells individuals that if they have enough faith, um, if they believe hard enough, that they will receive what they desire. But they'll always receive it if they have enough faith. 
that God will never tell them no. My friends, this is a lie. God indeed does say no. And He probably does it more often than we even realize. God probably tells us no uh, to things that we don't even know that we're asking for. God does say no. But the thing is that He's a good father. And good fathers, good mothers, good parents, they say no. <laughs> The, the ones that say yes to every single thing and never say no to their child, never discipline their child, never try to direct their child, they're failing their child. But God doesn't fail His children. So God does say no to us when it does not benefit us or, or bring about His will in our lives. God saying yes to every prayer we offer up is not an expression of how strong our faith is or how much He loves us. It's not. We're told in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say that all things will work together according to our desires, but that it works together for our good. And God knows what is best for us, even when we may not know what that looks like. Amen. We see things that happen to us in our lives, and at the moment, it is terrible. Most of the time we can look back on those instances and see God's hand in those situations and say, had God not brought me through that trial, I would not be where I am now. It's easy to do that with hindsight, right? It's always easy to look back. And even though we have examples of that in our life, we forget very quickly because we're forgetful people. We forget very quickly and we find ourselves again praying not for what God wills in our lives, but for what we desire in our lives. God has not promised to bring about our desires, but about good. He's promised to bring about good. God knows, again, what is best for us, even when what is best for us may, at the time, look bad. Now, this comes from a faulty, uh, a faulty understanding of what good for us actually means. It's not the American dream. It's not fancy homes and cars. It's, it's not plenty of money. It's not fame. It's not fortune. It's not a smooth uh, street to drive down at all times. That's not what good is. What good looks like for the Christian is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're here this morning and you've come to faith in Christ, that should be your utmost desire. is to be conformed to the image of Christ. More so than having a nice home. More so than having a, a fancy car. More so than having plenty of money or any other thing that the American dream promises you. But to be conformed to the image of the dear Son of God. If you've come to God for money, He's not your God. Money is. That's a great Shaolin uh, quote. Uh, if you've come to God for money, then He's not your God. Money is. If you've come to God for fame and fortune, then that's your God. Not Yahweh. If you've come to God for any material thing, then God is not your God. That material thing has become your God. Amen. However, if you've come to God to be conformed to the image of Christ because you know your sin, you're weary of your sin, you're burdened by your sin, and you know that the only thing that will save you is being conformed to His image, then the God of the, of the Bible is indeed your God. And not only that, he will accomplish that very thing through the trials and the victories of this life. It's easy for us to look and see uh, the victories that we uh, partake in and, and say, oh, I see, how, I see how God's working in the moment. Or I see how God's working in this to bring about uh, being conformed to His image or bring about good in my life. And while we can look in hindsight and see the bad things, it's something that we need to discipline ourselves in to look even in the trials and the tribulations and say, I may not see how God is using this to conform me. I may not see how God is using this to bring about good in my life. But I will trust that He is doing that. I will trust that He is doing that. Another very common reason that we fail to pray as David did is because when we look in the mirror, and when we reflect upon our day, we see nothing but our shortcomings. Right? We see our failures. We see our faults. We see the sins we've committed. We see how, how poorly we lived that day. We see our failures, and that discourages us from prayer. Right? We're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. When, when you've just committed a sin, no matter how great or small, it's very hard to, in that very moment, turn to prayer 
Right? We don't feel worthy enough. We don't feel uh, worthy enough to come to God in prayer. But David did. So the next logical question that we have to ask is, why did David have such confidence? Why did David have this assurance? What made David so sure that God would hear his prayers? That God was indeed listening to him? After all, when we look at the life of David, we see that his life was no less marred by sin than ours. We see uh, a man who committed adultery and then effectively had her husband, uh, the woman's husband, murdered on the front lines of a war and then tried to cover it up. David wasn't a saint. <laughs> uh, that's one example. David over and over and over again in his life failed. He sinned and would fall into sin over and over and over again in his life just as we did. David was no saint and we're no saint. Yet David had, had confidence. He had trust that the Lord was listening to him. We look at our lives and we see this same sinful depravity marking us. So what can we learn from David here? Well, he gives us the reason for his confidence right in the very first verse of Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. O God of my righteousness. So how can we have confidence that God will indeed hear our prayers? Because even though we fail daily, even though we fall short uh, at every moment in our lives of the glory of God, Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't fall short. God is our righteousness. That's what David is proclaiming, right? Oh God of my righteousness. Not his own righteousness. It wasn't David's righteousness that brought him this assurance that God heard him, but the fact that God was his righteousness. Yeah. For those of us who belong to the kingdom of God, we have received a righteousness not of ourselves. It's an alien righteousness. It's something foreign to us. We don't understand it because we are depraved by nature. However, it's the same righteousness that David enjoyed uh, through his faith as God is his Redeemer. The same righteousness that was bestowed upon Abraham for his faith and trust in the promises of God. It's this righteousness that gives us the boldness spoken of in Hebrews 4 to call on God in our time of need. The same righteousness that makes us clean before us the sight of a holy and just God. This is a remarkable truth. That we have been given the very righteousness of God. That God's righteousness has been lavished upon us. It's a truth that allows us, or should allow us, to have the same posture towards prayer that David did. David didn't have confidence in his prayer life because of himself. It wasn't because he was the king of Israel. It wasn't because uh, he had access to the prophets. It wasn't because he had access uh, to the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't because of any of those things. It wasn't because of his, how good he was or how well he kept the law. But he knew that God heard him because God was his righteousness. God, this remarkable truth that God is our righteousness should give us boldness to speak to our Father. And I think it's important too that we, we view God, yes, He is God, and yes, we have reverence for Him as the sovereign Lord of the universe, but for those of us who have been adopted through Christ, we need to view Him as our Father. That talking to God in prayer is no different than you walking into your dad's house and talking to your dad. It's no different. It's no different than the confidence that I spoke of earlier that I have speaking to my Father. While this is a remarkable truth, and it should bring about um, encouragement for us to pray, God being our righteousness is, uh, has more bearing on our lives than simply giving us confidence in our prayer life. It redirects our path, and it cleanses our heart. David in verse 2 points out the sin of those chasing after him. Right? The sin of the men of Israel... He reads, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? So he's calling out their sin. This is how David refers to sinners. 
This is what we were. For those of us in Christ, this is what we were in the past tense. This is what unbelievers still are. Now that's the harsh reality of the gospel, right? That man is sinful and in need of a Savior. That's the part of the gospel we don't like sharing. Nobody cares about sharing about the hope that Jesus gives in salvation. The hard part of sharing the gospel is telling someone that they're sinful. Telling someone that they're depraved. Telling someone that they're not worthy. Telling someone that, that they are unholy. That they are separated from God. That they can't do anything about it. That they're dead in their sin. We don't like talking about that part of the gospel. But it's a harsh reality of the gospel. That man is sinful and in need of a Savior. And it's not as though humanity is just a little off track. Right? That, that it just needs a little nudge getting back on the train tracks. No. In this analogy, mankind is completely derailed and the train is engulfed in flames. There is no hope of salvation in ourselves. There's no hope in ourselves of rescue. All is lost and we are helpless. We don't like talking about that. And I know for certain unbelievers, because I was one at one moment, don't like hearing that because, again, it attacks our pride. It attacks our pride. Humanity since the fall has been completely separated from God, unable to keep His holy law, unable to live up to His holy statutes, unable to please Him, and ultimately unable to dwell with Him as Adam and Eve did in the garden. The severity of man's depravity is, is not as light as the world would have you believe. It's not as insubstantial as the modern church makes it out to be. Man's depravity is daunting. It's crushing. It's violent. And it brings about a violent end an eternity in hell. It's something that mars us from the very moment of our conception. Right? David, I know I've used this many times, but David in, in the 51st Psalm speaks of how in sin his mother conceived him. It's from the very moment that we begin to be that we are sinful. It's not as if we are born and then the moment we first sin, now we've got a problem. We had a problem from the moment we came into being. Our depravity is a one-way ticket to hell. It's a one-way ticket to punishment. And there's no emergency cord that you can pull like you can on a train to stop that locomotive. But there's good news. We're not left in the dark. right? We're not left without hope. There is hope, but it's not in ourselves. Or in this world. But it's in the Gospel. Romans 5, 6 delivers this hope when it states, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. While we were still helpless. And it wasn't when we cleaned ourselves up enough. It wasn't when we started doing enough right things. It wasn't when we started living correctly. Because quite frankly we couldn't. We were dead in our sins. But when we were helpless, when we were lost, when we were unable to do anything about it, at the right time, that pre-appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. The hope is not in us realizing our destination and again trying to pull some emergency cord to stop uh, our, our travels. But it is Christ standing in the middle of the track, stopping the train and pulling us off and then wrapping us in His righteousness. It's all Christ. We did nothing, and Christ did everything. But it doesn't stop here. It doesn't just stop at the fact that, that we have been clothed, for, us, for those of us who are believers, that we've been clothed in righteousness. It doesn't stop there. In verse 2 again, David, uh, being redeemed by God, refers to himself as one who has been set apart. I'm sorry, verse 3, not verse 2. Uh, he refers to himself as one who has been set apart, right? Uh, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. Right? This is no less true uh, for us as it was for David. 
right? For those of us who are in Christ, it actually uh, it may be more of a reality, right? That we have been set apart for for God. In fact, it leads us to this very truth: that the Lord consecrates His people. The Lord consecrates or sets apart His people. When God saves an individual, He doesn't simply clean them up and, and wash them and make them new, pat them on the back, and then send them on their way. That's not what happens. Instead, He cleanses them of their sin, sets them apart or consecrates them, and then brings them closer and closer to holiness through the means of sanctification. We've been called, as David points out here, to be separate We've been called to be separate from this world. We've been called to be separate from, from those who are in rebellion to God. Not in a physical sense, obviously. We cannot remove ourselves from this world. Uh, we cannot uh, remove ourselves uh, from, from living in this life. And it certainly does not mean physical separation from the unbeliever. God forbid. How then can we share the gospel? But God has called us again not to isolation. But to separation. He's called us to separation. And he says this in Leviticus 11.44. And Peter uh, reiterates this in his uh, epistle. But Leviticus 11.44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy as I am holy. Now, Peter again in that same epistle uh, refers to us as a royal priesthood. That we've been set apart for the work of the Lord. That we've been called, even by Jesus Himself, right, to be light in the darkness, to be the salt of the earth, to be a city set up on a hill. Amen. We've been called to live holy lives. So our righteousness and the fact that we've been saved doesn't stop there. There's continued sanctification through the life of the believer. And this is what David is communicating to us when he says the Lord consecrates His people for Himself. Right? Now modern Christianity would call this being conformed to the image of Christ or living holy. They like to twist it and say that it's legalism. Right? That you're a legalist if you live holy. That you're a legalist if you practice obedience. They want to tell you that Jesus loves you for you. And that God doesn't want you to be anything other than what He created you. Friends, if that were true, Christ died needlessly. If that were true, then all of Scripture is a lie. Friends, this is not even within striking distance of the truth. God does not love you for who you are. As a matter of fact, if we flip over to the very next psalm, Psalm 5, verse 5, He says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord, Lord abhors, which is a stronger word for the word hate. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Don't buy into this lie that, that God just wants you to be you. That Jesus loves you the way that you are. If that were true, there would be no need for Him to clothe you in His righteousness. If that were true, your righteousness would be enough. If that were true, the way that you live would be considered holy. But it's not. We've been called to holiness. We can't buy into the lie that living holy, that living separate from the ways of the world, that, that living in contrast to the way that unbelievers live. We cannot buy into the lie that this is legalism. Because it's not. We've been called to crucify ourselves daily. Right? Jesus said that we should crucify ourselves, that we take up our cross and follow after Him. This means confronting our sin, repenting of it, and walking in a manner worthy of that which we have been called. Obedience to the commands of Jesus is not legalism. On the contrary, legalism is a, a chain that holds you down. Legalism is something that keeps you in constraints from freedom in Christ. Obedience to the commands of Christ is what gives us freedom in Christ. We are free not to live as we please. Right? People twist what Paul says in Galatians 2. We're not free to live as we please. But we're free to obey the commands 
of Jesus. It's the only true assurance that we can have that we love Him. 1 John 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verses 2 through 5 states, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John states here in this first epistle that we know we love God by keeping His commandments. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that. right? Jesus tells us that if we love Him, what? We will keep His commandments. This continued call to holiness, to righteousness. But beloved, John also states that his commandments are not burdensome. Living according to the commands of Christ should not be viewed as a burden. If it's a burden to you, I would ask you to re-examine your faith. To see if you are truly in Christ. If, if, if following after the way of our Lord and Savior seems like a, like a drag to you. If it seems like it is just, it's not fun, it's not cool, it, I don't want to do that. I would ask you, re-examine your faith. Make sure that you have come to true faith in Christ. Because His commands are not burdensome. They're not a drag. As a matter of fact, we take joy in them. We are brought peace and happiness when we obey the commands of Christ. Don't let the world or false Christianity tell you that you don't have to live holy. Or that you don't have to practice obedience. This is a lie from hell. And it's a fiery dart of Satan. Paul in Galatians 6, when he's talking about the armor of God, protect us against, from what? From the wiles of the devil or from the fiery darts of Satan, from the wicked one? This is one of them. And girding ourselves with the belt of truth and, and, and having a, a knowledge of God, the helmet of knowledge, will protect us from this lie. Knowing that, that holy living is not legalism, but indeed it is a joy to the Christian and a joy in his life. Don't let them rob you of the joy of obedience. But how is it that we can even accomplish this? Uh, it's certainly not by our own strength, right? We can't live a holy life by our own, our own strength. It's through the righteousness, again, that we've been given by Christ. The righteousness that we've been clothed in. The righteousness that is not ours, but is Christ's. And we've been charged with killing our sin. Uh, Jonathan Owens, John Owens, he said, Be killing sin, or your sin will be killing you. And there's a longer quote with that that, that is, makes it even better. Um, but that, that small snippet of that quote, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. We've been called to kill our sin. We've been called to practice obedience, yes, to practice obedience to the commands of Christ, so to not be disobedient. But we've also been called to, to repent of our sin and to, to eliminate that sin from our lives. Now, some sin is easier to kill than others. This is true. Uh, when we're first converted, it's, it's usually pretty easy to clean up our mouth. Uh, it's, it's usually pretty easy to stop with the coarse jesting. Uh, it's usually pretty easy uh, to stop swarping in the bars. But there's other things that we deal with that aren't as easy, like pride. <laughs> right? Pride's hard to kill. Uh, like uh, ego. Ego's hard to kill. Like uh, lust. Lust is hard to kill. All of these things take time. They, they, they take a battle. They take a war being waged against them. This isn't something that, that you're just simply going to wake up one morning and say, well, I'm not going to have pride anymore. I'm not going to gossip about people anymore. It takes active war against that sin. We can't accomplish that on our own. To walk in obedience, to kill our sin, to strive for further sanctification every single day is only possible through Jesus Christ. After all, what is it that Paul so boldly claims in Galatians chapter 2? I know this is Pastor Alex, uh, one of his favorite verses. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he's speaking on this very matter. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So what's Paul saying? He's saying it's not me. This life that I live now, this life of righteousness, this life of holiness, this life of sanctification, it's not me living this life, but Christ living in me. But again in Romans chapter 6 he says, Therefore we have been buried with Him in baptism into death, spiritual baptism, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. This is how we come to walk in the newness of life. And what is the newness of life? Holy living, right? Sanctification. That's the newness of life. Go living after the things of the Spirit, as Paul declares in Romans chapter 8. If you want to know uh, how to live a holy life, read Paul's epistles. <laughs> he will give you clear instruction on how to live a holy life. It's through Christ and our unity with Him and His dwelling in us that we can overcome our sin. And we can walk in holiness. And that we can be obedient to His commands. And friends, we know that in this life we'll be never completely free from sin. Right? As long as we're in this flesh, we will battle sin. We will have war with sin. We will uh, at times give in to sin. However, while we are not free from the act of sin, right? from the action of sin, we have been made completely free from the penalty of sin. Romans 8 1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation on me because I'm in Christ. Do I still sin? Yes. Does it make me look like a hypocrite every single time? But there's no condemnation on me because I am in Christ. I've been clothed in His righteousness. Because of this, because of this truth that we are no longer under the penalty of sin, we can one day enjoy the glorification that will bring about a complete end to our struggle with sin. That's, our, that's our, one of our goals, right? Is to finally one day shed this flesh and be free from the act of sin. 1 Corinthians 15.54 tells, tells us of this hope. But when this perishable will have to put on the imperishable. And this mortal will have to put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, I know we're Baptists, but that's enough to make us hoop and holler just a little bit. <laughs> to know that one day this, this perishable flesh will put on imperishable flesh. That one day this mortal body will, will take on a, this mortal body will take on an immortal body. And that death and the penalty of sin and my sin in totality will be swallowed up in the victory of Christ. This is the result of the righteousness that Jesus procured for us on the cross at Calvary. This is what His body was broken for, what His blood was shed for, so that we could cry in unison with David and with the saints throughout the generations, as we'll sing here in a few moments. Oh God of my righteousness. Oh God of my righteousness. Worthy is the Lamb. But what does possessing this righteousness of God bring us in this life? Right? We've spoken of what it does for us in eternity. Right? We've spoken of what it does for us in the next life. And what does it do for us in this life? What does it tell us about what we can enjoy now? It tells us that God is our rest. God is our rest. It's in Him and Him alone that we can have peace and joy in our hearts. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, as we, as Pastor Alex read this morning in the Scripture reading, that, that if Joshua had given true rest to the Israelites, if you read in the book of Joshua, um, if you walk through the book of Joshua, you will see that once the, the promised land is conquered, and they enter into the, the fullness of the, of the promised land, and the, the, the land is divided as it was supposed to be between the tribes, that even then, they didn't have full rest. This is what Hebrews is telling us. This is what we read this morning. That if, that if Joshua had brought rest to the Israelites, 
then there would not have been another day that was spoken about. There wouldn't have been another day that was promised to come. But that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A Sabbath rest, a rest from what? From the trials and tribulations of this life. Not only at the end a rest, but a rest now. It brings us peace with God right now. This isn't something that will take place later on down the road. Right now, if you are in Christ, you have peace with God. There's no condemnation on your head, as Jesus speaks of in John chapter 3. It also brings us assurance of our salvation. This rest that we can enjoy now brings us assurance of our salvation. But more importantly, it brings us a joy and a peace that this world cannot supply and that this world cannot understand. That's why when you read, when you read of missionaries who go into foreign lands and, and are martyred for the sake of the gospel, and you see uh, in their last dying moments that they are filled with joy, that they're filled with peace. How's that possible? They're about to be killed. How are they filled with joy? Because that's what God gives us through His righteousness. That's the reality of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that we can have joy. But it's not true just of missionaries who are being martyred for the sake of the gospel. That's true of us even sitting right here in this room this morning. All of those, those struggles and all those trials and the heartaches and the grief and the pain and everything that we go through in this life, we may not be happy every single moment because of those things, but we can have joy in every single moment because of Him. We can have joy in every single moment of our lives when our entire world seems to be falling apart. We can have joy in Christ. The battle we experience now with our flesh and the struggles of, of this life make it seem like times that we, have, we don't have rest, right? But we don't have peace. But it's by faith and trust in what God has promised. It's by remembering the words that God spoke to us that we know this is true. One of my favorite places to, to look to this for is in, found in Jeremiah chapter 31. When speaking through Jeremiah, God is laying out the parameters of the new covenant. He's telling us about this new covenant that we are now partakers of. He says, For I satisfy the weariness and refresh everyone who languishes. But David Hatton, at this point, when he wrote, when he pinned down verse 8, right? when he pinned down that in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. He hadn't entered into that Sabbath, Sabbath rest that Hebrews speaks of, though he has now. <laughs> and we as believers, though we've entered into a rest in Christ, we haven't fully uh, enter, entered into that Sabbath rest. We know that while we know it now in part, we will know it fully when He returns. However, we can have total trust and peace right now in the midst of a crisis. When our entire world seems to be crumbling, right? Think of the worst possible thing that could happen to you. Even in that moment, we can have joy and peace in Christ. When it looks like there's no way out of the situation, when it looks like everyone around you has turned against you, when all your friends turn against you, when your family turns against you, when your parents turn against you, even in those moments, we can have joy and peace and find rest in God. I want to close with this. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28-30, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. A lot of people view this as a cliche verse. Uh, it's what you send somebody when they're struggling with something. Friends, we don't need to fall into that mindset. This isn't just a cliche that we can send people. This is a truth. This is a truth spoken by the, by the very mouth of Jesus Himself. That we can come to Him for rest for our weary souls. Believer, 
when your battle with sin has made you weary and your woes, the woes of this life have broken you down, come to Jesus. Find rest in Jesus. Unbeliever, when your sin has been made known to you and you can't bear the burden of that sin any longer, come to Jesus. Because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And He invites each and every one of us to come and find rest for our heavy laden hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the truths that we have found in Your Word. We thank You for the open line of communication that You have given us through prayer. That we can speak to You at any time. That You are there both day and night that you never take a moment away from us. But not only that, that you listen to every single thing that we say. Father, we're thankful that you continue, uh, continue to conform us to the image of your dear Son. Father, we thank you for the righteousness that you have clothed, clothed us with. We thank you for the righteousness that Christ procured for us from the cross of Calvary. We thank You for the commandments that You have given us, the holy commandments that You have given us to obey, that we may find joy in this life. Father, we thank You for the rest. Not only one day after a while, but the rest we can enjoy even now in Christ. Father, we pray that this morning there be a believer here who is, is weary, a believer who needs rest, a believer who is broken down by the trials of his life, that they would come to you. Father, if there are any unbelievers here, Lord, we pray that your word has pierced their heart, convicted them of their sins, shown them their depravity. Father, they will come to Christ. That you will do a work in their hearts. They will come to faith and be adopted into the family of God here this morning. We thank you again for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.